This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luc Olivier Dumablet. And I'm Yannick Magnan. And what's our topic this week, Yannick? Modern web development. Good. But before you start, I have some follow-up. And it's a quick item. Uh, it is a nice video Yannick encountered and forgot that he encountered. Uh, but it is a uh, follow-up item regarding the last episode where I was talking about my fitness journey. And it is a YouTube video from the channel called Not Just Bikes. And the title of the video is called The Gym of Life. And I think it's really uh, an interesting perspective on, uh, I guess... There is a, a political aspect of how our city has been built in North America, but uh, the gist of it, which, by the way, I'll invite you to go watch it because I'm sure I'll butcher out my summary of it. But the gist of it is how being forced to walk for transit or being forced to bike for transit means that you're doing exercises. You're doing activity. You're being active and that you'll be able to combine this with the boring task that is going to work or going to grab your groceries at uh, the grocery stores and things like that. So I don't want to say too much about this, but it was an interesting perspective on how to mix the things you're forced to do in your life. Literally, like I need to transport my body from one place to the other. I know, uh, especially for work purposes, for a lot of people, it is uh, no longer leaner because of the pandemic. But still, uh, it is a way to combine uh, one thing that is required to one thing that you want to do in more in your life, which is moving. Yeah, and I think the reason that I forgot that I linked you that video is not that I forgot that I linked you that video, but because the title changed. So when you said the new title, I didn't know what it was. But before oh. it was something like, uh, like the city is a gym or something like that. Like it wasn't exactly the same. Oh, possibly, possibly. I, I, I didn't take note of the title in, when you sent me the link and I watched it about a week ago. So I, just before we started recording, I opened it and then that was the title. But I think the way you're saying it right now rings a bell. So yeah, it's we, very trendy for YouTubers to change the titles on their videos nowadays. Uh, maybe we'll talk about that in a future episode, but um, it's a thing a lot of people do these days because it bumps you up in the algorithm, apparently. Yeah, I was about to say, all for the views. Yeah. <laughs> Good, and that was it for follow-up. Hey, Nick? All right, so last week was the uh, the three-month mark for my new job. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, the tech that I've used because there's a lot of firsts for me at this job. It's my first time using a Node.js as a serious development environment. It's my first time doing web apps with a split front end and back end. It's my first time deploying apps to cloud services. Uh, and we very recently shipped the first deliverables for the project that I'm assigned on. Uh, I'm literally having a meeting tomorrow morning about my next project assignment, which I don't know what it is yet. Um, and just before I get into it, I do want to briefly describe what my company does. I work at a company that does uh, product design for the medical and transportation industries. And this basically goes into one of two buckets. Either we're designing hardware devices and the software that runs on them, or we build cloud services that are built around existing devices. And the project that I'm assigned on is the latter. Um, I, I do also want to say, like, when I say designing hardware devices and the software that runs on them, like, we have a firmware team, we have an electronics team, we have uh, industrial designers. Like, we basically handle the entire thing up until manufacturing when we hand over the design to the company and then they handle it from that point on. Um, so that gives you an idea of the scope of uh, what my company does. 
And yeah, I thought it would be really interesting to go on a quick technological tour of what I've been using over the last three months because a lot of it happens to be modern web development technologies, uh, which I have opinions about. Why am I not surprised? Yeah, I have so many opinions, in fact, that I didn't finish my notes before the show, as I mentioned to the good of you before recording, so who knows how this episode's going to turn out. Again, why am I not surprised? Yeah. Uh, so let's start out with uh, the backend framework. This might be in a little bit of a weird order, but I think it's going to make sense in the end. So the backend framework that we use at work is nest.js. Nest.js is the most popular server-side application framework for node.js. It's primarily used for backend APIs, although nothing really prevents you from using it for more traditional server-side web apps as well. It is heavily modeled around Angular 2's design patterns and philosophy. Uh, this makes it really approachable if you are a front-end developer who is used to using Angular and you're working on a project by yourself and you need to create a backend for that application. If you know how to write a front-end application with Angular, you are going to find it super approachable because it's essentially the same structural rules. Um, I haven't used Angular in about five years. Uh, last time I touched it, Angular 2 was still in pre-release phases. Uh, but even with that little fam familiarity, it was very easy for me to pick up. Um, this is going to be the shortest uh, segment of the show because there's not much to say about it. It's just a really straightforward server-side framework that does what it sets out to do. It's very, very well-structured, and I'm fairly happy with this technology, so there's not much to complain about. So I'm afraid that's it for Nest.js. <laughs> Whoa, wait, are you skipping all the complaining or you're skipping all the good parts because there's nothing to complain about? I'm surprised. No, there's nothing to complain about. Again, I'm surprised. I, I am as well. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll stop the intro because you're not complaining. So next up, we're going to talk about the front end, uh, front end library, which is React. Uh, React is the hottest front-end UI library on the web right now. We've talked about it a lot on the show previously, uh, but the gist of it is that React is a UI library based on the principles of functional reactive programming. So in a traditional JavaScript application, uh, your code would have its own state, and you would have to manually synchronize uh, that state with what is being displayed in the HTML. Uh, those are two distinct worlds, and you sort of have to bridge the gap yourself. In a React application, your HTML is built from components, which are functions that take in state and spit out the correct HTML from the, uh, for that state. And then what React does is it orchestrates synchronizing that HTML with your actual page's HTML in a way that is performance efficient. And it transparently resolves a bunch of issues that would arise if you tried doing this the dumb way, that's like the easy way. Uh, for example, like if you have a text box and then you change that text box's HTML and you just replace the HTML on the page, uh, that control would lose focus. If you were typing, uh, your cursor would be in a different place. Uh, and basically all of that is resolved by having React handle it for you because it's going to do the correct calls all the time, or at least ideally. React FRP library, my personal take on FRP-based UI libraries is that they are great for developing applications with lots of complex interactive state. Now, why is that? Well, because the more complex your state is, the harder it is to keep synchronized manually without introducing crazy bugs. Uh, it's a lot easier to reason about these views if you approach them from the angle of rendering them out from scratch every single time and letting the library do the diffing for you. When combined with a data store like Redux that isolates your data mutations from your view rendering, 
It also greatly facilitates the testability of your code, which is probably what you want when you're dealing with the kinds of applications that FRP libraries are really well suited for. If you have a lot of complex state, you're going to want obviously more tests and having FRP plus Redux really makes that a lot easier. Uh, the thing that a lot of people tend to forget, though, is just because FRP reduce, uh, removes the burden of synchronizing your JavaScript state with the DOM and your HTML doesn't mean that it doesn't create burdens elsewhere in your code. Uh, there, contrary to popular belief, there is still a cost to adopting FRP. And I think people are a bit too eager to use FRP in situations where it doesn't make enough of a difference to warrant the cost. Um, going to what I said about uh nest.js wait a second oh i did actually forget to mention something about nest.js i don't know how i entirely like lost that part of my notes but whatever uh i'll mention it here nest.js one of the great things about that backend framework is that it is a framework not a library and this is a distinction i've mentioned on a couple episodes in the past um what I mean by a framework is that it has like very strictly laid out conventions on how you do stuff. And it's very hard to do things the wrong way. If you do things the wrong way, it's just not going to work. Whereas um, in a library, you might actually be able to write code that is not structured correctly. Mm, it's not really <laughs> the most... Uh, how would I say this? I kind of feel I know what you're trying to say, but I think the framework slash library distinction yeah. is a bit uh, thin i would say but well it's not that thin i think like it depends on like how how much is being provided by a framework versus how much is being provided by a library a library usually is what i consider to be like this does one thing and it's meant to be used in, co in collaboration with other libraries whereas a framework is kind of a complete solution to a specific problem mm. And yeah, it yeah. has uh, built-in design patterns and conventions that sort of structure how you program in that framework. You have a co you have a cohesive uh, set of APIs from that framework that work together end in end, and that allows you to build something cohesive. And that when you start uh, spelunking and trying to make them work in certain way, they might, but. Uh, they're not designed for this and they are kind of forcing you to not use this way because the developers of said framework know that it would not work correctly. Is that kind of where you're going with this uh, thinking? The, that's kind of what I'm trying to say is if you look at a nest.js project, you can't just write a controller in any random way. You sort of have mm. to write a controller in one specific way. And the way you plug it into the system is very defined in a specific way so that you sort of don't have a choice but to structure things the correct way. And if you try to structure mm -hmm. things the incorrect way, it is more likely not going to work than anything else. Like you're going to have to do more work to get it to work the incorrect way than any other way, uh, which is good because it means uh, if you're onboarding new developers, there are strong conventions there that they can learn from and uh, apply easily. Whereas if you're in a more freeform uh, approach, which is my, maybe something you'd have with a, what I would consider to be a library. Uh, you can just organize your code however you want. It's kind of a free-for-all. And then it's less obvious 
what to do as a new developer when you enter one of those projects. And I, like now we can go back to the React thing, which was supposed to be a counterexample to the thing that I forgot to say in the Nest section, which is React is kind of the polar opposite of this. React does not provide a lot of stuff that people expect out of app development frameworks because it isn't one. Um, but because it's the trendy name right now, people tend to combine a bunch of different libraries together to make an informal framework out of it anyway. Uh, oh. This means you can kind of look at a hundred different React projects and they're all going to do authentication, localization, routing, and testing in different ways. If you compare with Angular, which is a front-end framework, it provides a lot of this stuff itself instead of leaving it up to external libraries. And it has uh, strong code conventions, much like Nest, because Nest was modeled on Angular, uh, which means there's a lot more uniformity in the projects when you uh, go from one to the other, and it's a lot easier to pick up, even though it is on paper more complex than uh, React is. Uh, so React has no conventions as to how code is organized either. You can kind of organize it however you want, which is not always great. No consistency from one project to another. And basically, like after seeing how easy Nest.js was to pick up due to its opinionated design, I've become more sold on the idea of opinionated app frameworks as a means of uniformizing development patterns within large teams, uh, which is not something I would have said maybe like 10 years ago. I would even say not even two, three years ago. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think like, I'm not trying to make fun of you or anything, but I think it is something that I can, I'm not surprised that you ended to this conclusion, but I, I, I do believe that it's something that has changed in a, because of your previous experiences of the past few years. I, I do also want to state that I think there are things that work for the business environment and for the work environment that are not necessarily true for my personal value system for how I would write my own personal projects. Uh, oh, that's for sure. Because I don't have to manage a team when I'm writing Cesura, right? Uh, All right. So uh, unless you manage you and you, if you see what I mean, but yeah. that's a different problem. But um, this is going to be a theme throughout the episode. Basically, there's going to be a lot of complaining that is going to be like, this doesn't align with my value system. That doesn't mean that the thing is bad. It just means it doesn't align with my value system. Uh Although a lot of these things are also bad. <laughs> so, speaking of things that are also bad, um, let's talk about one of my first sort of roadblocks with React, which is class versus component, uh, sorry, class versus function components. Hmm. Uh, so a little history lesson for uh, people who have not uh, used React before. Originally, React components, which are basically like custom tags you can define. So like, you know how in HTML there's like, uh, the P tag, which is a paragraph, and there's the input tag, which is basically right. every input element because it's the worst tag in HTML. Uh, I do like that you do, sorry for the interruption, but I do like that you do all the web basics one-on-one -on -one because as I mentioned multiple times, I'm so bad at web development. So it, it counts for me. That's good. That's exactly why I'm doing it. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> so you can basically define your own tags, uh, which uh, React calls components. Uh, so like I can make a... A fancy checkbox tag. This is literally a component I I made in the last week, uh, which is literally just like a, a checkbox with fancy styling or whatever. And you can make that uh, a tag by, uh, well, in the old days, you would subclass react.component, which is a class. And basically, you had to override the render method at minimum. And that render method would return an HTML hierarchy for the current state of the component. 
And there were other methods on that class, like component did mount, which you could override to kick off things like Ajax requests when an instance of the component got loaded into the page. Uh, and this was pretty straightforward as it was fairly intuitive. If you had used an object-oriented language before in a UI environment, you could pretty much figure out how to do 80% of the things you would want to do with React components right away. It was a really intuitive way to do things, but it did kind of confuse the message that components are pure functions because in practice, they were classes. Mm. Later, they realized this and they added a new different way to declare components as actual functions and they made it the primary way to declare components essentially a functional component is a is the render method that you would have written for your uh, reactor component subclass uh, and it just makes easy things e even easier than they already were but if this is now the primary way you write components you need a way to declare things that only happen in certain points in the life cycle so they created something called React Hooks, uh, and it's a way of encapsulating stateful behavior in a special function so that these behaviors can be used within functional components. Uh, there are three basic hooks that are provided by React. There is use state, which keeps state tied to your component. There's use effect, which runs things with side effects. And there's use context, which allows you to grab a reference to the context object passed by a parent component. And the thing is, like, this is not a design pattern you are used to seeing outside of React. It's a pattern that is proper to React itself. The other thing is there's some nuance to using them correctly. It's nowhere as user-friendly as component did mount and you post your code in there and everything just happens at the right moment. No, there you have dependencies to uh, define and stuff like that. Like, there is definitely some nuance to using them correctly. So... My point here isn't that React hooks are bad or hard to use once you understand them, because they're not once you understand them. The problem is, like, I find that it kind of reflects poorly on your library if the recommended way to do things is the unintuitive way. And the intuitive way is not technically deprecated because there's a lot of legacy code that still depends on it, but everything in the documentation tells you not to do this anymore. So it's effectively deprecated. It's like, it's very weird that you had this super intuitive API and they're like, this is the best you could do to come up with something that was functional, but it's also not really intuitive. I don't know. It's kind of a little nitpick, but uh, like trying to understand how React hooks work was easily like the first two weeks of my job was like, that was the hardest thing I had to understand because it just looking at it, I couldn't tell what it was doing. Whereas if you just show me a, a subclass of React.Component, like I can tell you what that component does without knowing React, be just because it uses design patterns I've seen elsewhere before. Um, at the same time, I think a lot of people right now on the job market know literally only React. Uh, so maybe this is just a boomer problem. Um, <laughs> a boomer problem. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Sounds like you're uh, trying to drop a title suggestion here. No. I still believe you are, but <laughs> okay, sure, whatever. Believe whatever you want to believe. <laughs> and did you have a question? Uh, no, just a small comment that it's kind of funny how again I'm sure inverse things because uh, React came first, but it's funny how you the way you describe the new way of React components because it kind of reminds me of how you build SwiftUI views. But I know SwiftUI came after React, so yeah. It's pretty interesting. I know a lot of people uh, made the comparison uh, when SwiftUI came out. 
Uh, so, hmm, interesting. Yeah, and of course, if you want to hear what I have to say about SwiftUI, we did a whole episode about that where I sort of explained the issues with SwiftUI and how actually React on the web has some advantages because CSS exists on the web and stuff like that. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Okay, the last one is more of a community issue than it is a um, a library level issue. Are we still talking about SwiftUI here? No, no, I'm talking about React, sorry. <laughs> I, I know, I know, that's the joke. Oh, okay. Well, it also maybe kind of applies to the Swift community as well, but whatever. Uh, so the point I'm trying to make here is that practically no one actually knows how to create a React project from scratch. And this is going to sound okay. bizarre. but Yeah, that's weird. Okay, so when most people create and create create, yeah, great. When most people create a new React project, they use the Create React App utility, which builds a React app from a pre-existing template. Mm. Now, the first thing I'm going to say is, if you spend all your time claiming that you are just a UI library, uh, having your application built from a pre-existing template sounds an awful lot like a framework thing, but without wanting to take on the actual responsibilities of what it is to be a framework but we're just going to put that to the side that's a whole other thing uh so create react app that's what everyone uses and basically this utility does all of the configuration and version management of the myriad underlying dependencies for you this meta package actually makes it relatively easy to upgrade to the next stable version of react because if you update uh, a project that was created with create react app uh, it also updates all of the dependencies to the la- latest stable version that they have been tested against with the newest version of React. So it's kind of cool. It's, it's There are some upsides. The downside is that by default, uh, CRA provides the configuration to the dependencies directly, and you cannot alter them at all. There are hmm. sort of two options to circumvent this. You can do what's called ejecting your project uh, from being managed by a Create React app. But that undoes all of the advantages of being managed by Create React App, which most people still want anyway. There's also uh, layers like the one we use in our project, which is called Cracko, Create React App Configuration Override, which is basically a code injection tool that lets you inject configuration while staying managed by CRA. What? Yeah. Okay, uh, I I start to echo now your your sentiment about yeah it's kind of a library that wants to be a framework but doesn't want to be a framework. Yeah, and um, so if I had to give a rough estimate just based on like Stack Overflow results and stuff like that, I'd say that about ninety percent of the people using React are using straight Create React app templates. Nine percent are using Craco or Craco. I don't know how you pronounce it, and then one percent do something completely funky that is not within the realms of CRA at all. This is a problem whenever you have a need that deviates from the environment that Create React App sets you up with, because you're going to be in a minuscule pool of users of people who are outside the CRA world and who ostensibly work know how the rest of Node works. It's kind of like uh, an issue that happened in the Ruby community back in the day when rails came out and you had these developers where like all they know is rails they do not know about how anything outside of the rails environment works even though they're ostensibly writing ruby all day they just have blinders on and they only see what rails provides them 
And I think like for certain types of developer, ah, for certain types of developers, that's fine because like 95% of your work is going to be like all spending all day in Rails. But if you're completely blind to what is happening outside of Rails, uh, there's a lot of the world out there. Um, and the other thing is that, I, I mean, I'm kind of going to be spoiling a bit of the ending here, but there is a world in which you can use React without having NPM installed. Hmm. And like, if you're always depending on create React app, you're never going to see that world because it's literally all you're ever going to see because it's literally an NPM package. Uh, so yeah, there, I think like there is a world in which React development is a lot better than it is within the walls of NPM, but we'll talk about that later. So that does it for the React part of the show. Did you have any questions? Nope. Nope. All right. Let's talk about Node and NPM. God damn it. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So that's a way to start a section. It, it's not a very long section because I haven't finished writing it all out. Um, but yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. So uh, I, they don't I, sound positive at all. <laughs> well, Node has improved. So that, okay. that's where I'm going. So I last used Node five years ago when we were trying to get a proof of concept app working on Angular at uh, the insurance company. And back then, things were quite bad because Node was in a, the middle of a transitional period. And most of our time was spent figuring out, like, figuring out, like, who's arguing with who and which of these appears to be winning to try and bet on the correct choice of which tech was going to end up winning so that we wouldn't have to rewrite a bunch of our code. In the end, all of us quit the job, so it didn't really matter. Um, but back then, there was a big divide between uh callback based interfaces mm. and promises and async await for asynchronous operations i think async await wasn't even in the picture yet it was just promises oh yeah i can imagine the fight between those two clans yeah so there was that going on uh there were multiple competing incompatible ways to define javascript modules which like i i swear at least 75 percent of our time was spent trying to figure out how to get our dependencies to resolve correctly sounds fun yeah uh, luckily, nowadays, I mean, it, it was hell a few years ago because from what I hear, Node developers had to do a lot and a lot and a lot of modernization work on their code bases to make everything uniform with the winners of those holy wars. Uh, but the good news is that because the Node developers put in all of that work years ago, things are a lot better today than they were back then. And that's great. Um, so... Actually using Node and everything I've had to do with regards to using like system APIs via Node and all of that stuff, like all of that is actually fairly good. Um, it's about as acceptable as you would expect from any like, like between systems programming language and like whatever C Sharp is. Uh, general purpose programming language. It's basically on par with other general purpose programming languages is what I'm trying to say. Um Unfortunately, Node comes alongside with NPM. And everything you've imagined about how bad NPM is, is true. And in fact, it's probably worse. So uh, I've already written an article about dependency hell, and you can go read that. I don't want to rehash it for the seventh time. Uh, but basically, yes, NPM is dependency hell. Uh, it tries to give you tools to audit the security issues with your dependencies. 
Um, but unfortunately, like you are kind of limited in what you can do with that information. For example, uh, when I was doing my job interview project, I started a new create React app project because I mean, like I was learning like everyone else and no, literally no one will tell you how to do anything other than create React app. So I do that. And immediately the output from the NPM tells me that I have six medium to high vulnerabilities in my application already. Uh, what? For, yeah. From a blank project? Yeah. Wow. Well, a blank project is like 1,300 packages. What did you expect? Um, oh, fuck. <laughs> and then you, you run the command uh, that it tells you to use to fix those issues, but the number goes up 27 vulnerabilities, and you're like, wait, 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 I thought I was supposed <laughs> to fix it. The problem is like there's literally no combination of uh, versions that actually makes those issues go away because it's not patched yet. So you just have to live with those vulnerabilities. And it sort of leaves the only option left to you if you want to make that number go down is like, go patch the security issue yourself and get it into master, uh, which I don't think is helpful for most people, um, especially people who are not like security experts. Right. It, it kind of creates a culture of just just ignore the security message. And then exactly. one day you'll get the real warning in the bunch of warnings and guess what you'll never read it because you've uh y you've you've been used to just ignore all those security warnings exactly and like the, the audit tools like you can actually like say give me a summary of each security exploit uh and like it links you literally to the github issues page where you can go see like this is the bug that is waiting to be fixed and it's like okay well this does not apply to our use case because we don't do SSO, for example. So you can just like cross that one out mentally. But it's still a big burden to sort of have this kind of meaningless number of vulnerabilities in your face all the time that you can't really do anything about other than try and go and patch a project you've never worked in before, right? Right, and it's kind of weird too if, if you said that. Like, Let's take back your example. If it's an SSO dependency and you're not planning to do single sign-on in your project, like why are you fo you're forced to have this dependency in your base app, even if you know you will never use it? It might like introduce kind of not a backdoor, but or you do this in this library and it impacts your app, even if you're not using SSO. Right. Well, it, it, the thing that's kind of weird about it is. So like it's the joke that NPM has massive dependency trees. And what everyone says is, oh, yeah, 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 but that's no big deal because your bundler or whatever that actually like renders the final JavaScript files that are going to ship uh, in your user's browser or uh, is going to be built and run on the server, uh, it's going to strip out all the code that is not executed. So in theory, you don't have to worry about it. But the problem is like all of the audit tools only look at that raw dependency tree and not at the final code that is generated. And therefore any bugs that impact code that you are stripping out will show up at that number, even though it technically isn't even in your output. <laughs> of course. Yep. Yeah, and that's kind of why I'm saying like why are the aren't the modules you can tack on to those projects? But I guess it's a discussion of another day. Uh, well, yeah, modules. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just hey. having the the whole thing of when the JavaScript modules had all those seven different ways you can <laughs> define them. That it's giving me a headache. But I'm not saying it's it's an issue. But to me, a blank project with 1,300 dependencies is problematic, especially on dependencies that you like. I don't need them. It's probably closer to like 600 or something. But yeah, I I, I agree. And the problem is like. 
like you saw this when left pad got uh-huh. removed like it's literally single functions that are being packaged up and i i mean like i i don't want to shit on micro libraries too much because i i am a fan of micro libraries like uh there was a website microjs.com i think it was back in the day that used to list a bunch of micro libraries the difference is that micro libraries were actually doing things that were useful in a very small file size which is great and especially if you're not using a package manager and you're just like embedding scripts into a web page which is what we used to do in the old days uh that actually matters uh one of the things i have in my notes is that npm is kind of a cultural disregard for wasteful use of computing resources basically like because they have this impression that like well well we're compiling out the javascript and stripping out everything that's not being used that means that large dependency trees are only an issue for the developer who needs to have the disk space to hold the dependency tree but other than that like it's not a problem and it's all going to solve itself in the end when you actually build. And it's like, yeah, but have you also tried downloading like the source tree for Android and it's like a 35 gigabyte thing or whatever, like that, uh, it's actually an even bigger environment than that. Like there are gigantic source trees sometimes. And, uh, if everything starts to become dependent on like basically every NPM package, you're going to be pulling down like some giant percentage of NPM every time you actually build the project. And it's going to take a long ass time to download all of that. Every time you do something, uh, it already takes like a couple of minutes just to generate that CRA project to download all of the JavaScript files. Yeah. That was my next point. You mentioned, uh, like disk space, but I was saying like bandwidth to you, I guess, businesses have unlimited bandwidth but still we don't all have unlimited speed right it's, it's like slow- okay here's my my sort of dumb thing here is like do i still have my react app hang on i'm gonna go check if i have it i'm gonna go check the file size i'm pretty sure like a hello world project is like 600 megs and i'm not kidding what it's something ridiculous um src and it is funny, like, while you look at this, like, you can have, like, even, like, people are complaining that, like, a bare-bones Swift app is pretty big, but, like, it's not 600 megs installed on your phone, things like that. It's through, it's for basically 400 megs to have a Hello World app <sighs> in React. Wow. On my machine right now. Uh wow. This was, like, three months ago when I did the interview. So, that's a lot of JavaScript for basically an app that does nothing. And uh, if you've learned anything from listening to this podcast, uh, power to weight ratio is something that I have become increasingly interested and obsessed with uh, with regards to software development. And NPM NPM culture seems completely opposed to that because they're like, fuck it, just add more dependencies. Uh, Like there are entire threads of people on Hacker News that are like, my job basically just consists of gluing NPM packages together now. I hate this. I remember when I used to be able to develop things and now I'm just literally hooking up NPM packages together. What is this hell? Um, And yeah, it's sort of the attitude that has sort of taken over a lot of uh, software development shops. I'm lucky that uh, my tech lead right now on this project also hates dependency hell so we (laughs) are implementing we are being much more careful with which dependencies we are choosing uh we are determining if we can implement things ourselves instead of relying on dependencies uh because certain things don't warrant the dependency trees they have um and so it's good to have people in your organization who are also kind of 
averse to dependency hell so that you can keep things in check, even though it's still wild because everything you install installs a bunch of dependencies for no reason. Uh, but we try to aim low in dependency count as much as possible, uh, even though it's kind of hard at times. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention about NPM uh, being hell is that the recent Ukraine conflict has also caused a lot of questionable moves from major dependency providers that are essentially weaponizing their packages to delete files if they're installed on, com on computers within Russia. Um, now, I'm not within a Russian subnet or whatever, uh, but it sucks to the people who are basically just like stuck in this country who are doing software development that now they're basically getting malware from NPM when they do web development. Uh, I, I, I understand the message you're trying to send, but it's also kind of being a dick to everyone else. And it basically makes you question how much trust you can have in npm package vendors and like there, there's this whole stuff going on because now the government is realizing the u.s government is realizing hey we use npm for things too we might actually be vulnerable to cyber attacks because of this and it's like no shit we've been saying this all along um <laughs> so that's happening too i don't know um the most hilarious thing is that all of this kind of came up during the whole ruby on rails cold rush uh, when Ruby gems got really popular, like basically like this is kind of the underlying th theme of node node was supposed to be like this magical thing that was going to save us from all of the bad things that we learned from Ruby and Ruby on rails while simultaneously learning none of the lessons that were learned during <laughs> Ruby and Ruby on rails. And that's kind of my philosophical issue with a lot of the node stuff is that they put their fingers in their ears and they just pretend Ruby on Rails never happened, even though we've had these exact same conversations 10, 15 years ago. Sounds fun. Anyway, that is a fantastic segue into my next section, which is JavaScript and TypeScript. Because I want to start with a quick history lesson. Ooh. Do you know about the XHTML debacle of the early 2000s? I think. Wasn't it that it was the camp that HTML shall be like strict XML versus who cares about XML fight. That is what it is, but I okay. I, I don't know if you know about the impacts of that. Oh, war. No, no. that that's my main uh, knowledge regarding. Yes, yeah, so main context. Yes, about okay. the whole thing. So let me teach you a few things about web history here. Uh, so wait a second, isn't it X HTML for Microsoft or push my Microsoft? Uh, I don't remember how involved they were. I don't think so because IE8 technically does not support XHTML at all. And it just like makes mm. you download the page as a, as a download okay. instead of showing the page if it's XHTML. So I, I would, I don't think so, but, uh, I, I honestly don't remember much of the players in that space. I just remember Fair. the awful experience of while it was happening. <laughs> so. XHTML debacle basically caused this huge debate about whether web, web browsers should remain indefinitely backward compatible. The proposed XHTML future was one in which web pages without explicitly set doc types would be parsed as XHTML. Uh, so if you don't know about uh, doc types, doc types are usually this thing you go in the first line of your uh, HTML file that say, hey, I am an HTML file for this version of HTML. I'm HTML5, I'm HTML 4.01, traditional, I'm XHTML 1.0, whatever. Uh, the problem with this is that doc types did not exist when HTML came out. 
so any web pages that were made before doc types were a thing would be incorrectly interpreted as XHTML. Now, here's the issue with that. XHTML is backward compatible with old HTML, but old HTML is not forward compatible with XHTML. Any errors that you would encounter in an old HTML file that is being parsed in an XHTML context would not do what you're used to today, which is try to guess what the best interpretation of this code should be and show that. Instead, it would show you an error message. And it would say, this is bad XML. Go fix your code, dumbass. Sounds fun for your users. XML people are great. Um, <laughs> so basically, this proposed default of assuming any unidentified page was XHTML would have caused basically all of the old web to break overnight. And it would uh, just make those pages throw error messages, say, fix your XML. Uh People realized very quickly that this was not ideal. Uh, so they determined that web browsers need to stay backward compatible indefinitely. Uh, and the modern day philosophy with this is once something becomes a part of, the, of a web standard, it's set in stone and any mistakes that are made are stuck there in perpetuity to ensure that web pages that were written in 1995 continue to work forever. This leads to a purely additive software environment, which is not unlike Windows, where nothing ever gets deprecated, nothing poorly designed ever gets fixed, and adding a better alternative to something that is poorly designed is very hard to justify because it will only become more confusing if there are too many redundant ways to do the same thing. Uh, this is not a problem that Windows cares about. They just add more and more redundant tech <laughs> into their shit all the time. But on the web, they try to avoid that. Uh, so what this means is that JavaScript is kind of a messed up language and we're stuck with all of its many, many, many mistakes forever. Um, new versions of JavaScript can have features added to them that will cause scripts to crash on old browsers that don't support that version. And that's fine. That's accepted. But ideally, JavaScript needs to continue to execute all of JavaScript that has ever been written since 1995 in the exact same way it ran at the time. And about the only exception that you can get to this is when there are major security issues involved, like the introduction of cores in the mid-2000 that uh, broke certain cross-domain AJAX requests. In fact, I think you remember that in college they tried to show us how AJAX worked, and basically all of the examples that they gave us did not work because they were not course compliant. And yeah. That does ring a bell. I, I think we had to use IE because Firefox had it patched out. And of course, IE was always behind because it was IE in the early 2010s. Uh, so one of the big, I, I don't know if it's a mistake so much as it is a design choice that ended badly. Yeah, that's a mistake. Uh, JavaScript has a <laughs> dynamic type system, but much like PHP, it's maybe a little bit too eager to convert between primitive types without warning you about it. And so people notice this, and uh, one of the popular remedies to this is to use TypeScript. Uh, TypeScript is a Microsoft-developed technology that adds type annotations and type inference to JavaScript. Uh, the TypeScript compiler will warn you at any time that you pass something of the wrong type to something else, even if it's technically legal in raw JavaScript, just to ensure that you're explicitly allowing conversions between types instead of just doing the thing that happens automatically, which may be unexpected. Uh, this combines with tooling and a lot of modern text editors to provide things like smarter code autocompletion. Uh, we actually talked about this on episode 42, which was a long ass time ago, called Burning Web. Time. Yeah, a long time ago. And uh, sorry for the intention again, but my understanding with of TypeScript is 
like you when you say it compiles it's it's to do the translation of the javascript typescript you write to bare bones javascript if i recall correctly well it's trips your code annotations but we'll ah, get to that <laughs> okay okay so yeah we, we talked about typescript on episode 42 many years ago and at the time i was pretty sold on it now that i've had to use it more i'm more annoyed by it though <laughs> sounds like your opinion about swift uh, sounds about my opinion about lots of type systems these days i really don't like type systems i'm finding out um the problem with TypeScript, though, which is not the problem of Swift, is that it is a fraudulent TypeScript system. It gives you a false sense of security of what you can actually do with it. So I'm going to give you a real-world example. This literally happened last week. Let's say I want to define a controller method in nest.js to respond to an API call. Uh, let's say it's going to return a list of data. And I want to pass two parameters in my URL's query string, a start date and an end date, so I can filter results by when they were created. So I define my method. It has two arguments of type date. Uh, Nest.js has this uh, query decorator that you can put next to the thing. Uh, query is basically like Java annotations, or I forget what they're called in Swift. Basically, it's like the at sign and the word that you can put next to things to say that they're a certain special thing. Uh, so you put at sign query next to it, and you say, okay, it's going to go get the value from the query string of the URL. Trick question. At runtime, what type is the argument of my controller method? Uh, I defined it as a date. Oh. Uh, why? Okay. Um, I'll say string, string, and then the, the list of something. It returns a list of something. No, it, it's a string. It, what do you mean it's a string? So it's string, two parameters string, and a return type string? No, no, no. I mean, the two parameters are going to be holding strings even though they are defined as dates. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Yes, that's what I assumed. Okay, yes, that is correct. Because there is no way for the thing calling my controller to know what my type annotations are. Uh, TypeScript type annotations do not generate metadata that can be consumed by anything else at runtime. That's your first warning sign. All of the yeah. reflection APIs in JavaScript don't know anything about your types because type annotations don't exist in JavaScript and all variables can house any type in raw JavaScript so they don't give a fuck. Sounds fun. Decorators are technically a TypeScript feature. They are not a JavaScript feature yet. I believe there is a proposal to get them in JavaScript, but I don't think it's been passed yet. Uh, decorators have no way of actually interrogating the type of the class property or the function argument that they are attached to. So... Even with that at sign query thing, it can't do some magic to determine that I have defined it as a date and therefore cast or convert the string to a date. So you have this argument, which is defined as type date, but it's going to contain a string. And therefore, anything you try to do with it, assuming it's a date, is going to type error. But the point of type annotations was to prevent type errors. And now you can't. <laughs> so... This is kind of my core issue with TypeScript, putting aside the fact that, like, yes, in general, I don't like TypeScript systems where you have to write a lot of code to shut the compiler up, uh, which is a lot of what you do with type systems. Uh, TypeScript basically makes JavaScript look and feel like a language with a rich type system and good reflection APIs. But the illusion quickly fades away whenever you try to implement things that will work in actual languages that do these things. And then you find yourself held back by JavaScript's limitations. It's always just JavaScript in the end. And that's the problem. <laughs> it, it, it's funny that you mentioned this. Again, I know Objective-C didn't have like 
a lot of the strictness of strict type languages. But in the recent years before Swift, uh, all the additions about putting more types and putting more thing, putting more check in the compiler just meant that it was still the compiler doing the job. Like when you would run, if you decided to tell the compiler to shut up and just do something that would be, let's call it this way, legal at runtime, it would still just work, right? Yeah. And yeah, I, I know it was a bit more bare bones than what you're describing, but your whole experience of that reminds me of those times where you would just do, if I make everything an id, it still works. But yeah, th- that's the thing is I would rather have everything be an ID or just use your raw JavaScript than have this fake ass type system lying there. And no, saying, and I get your point. I get your point. Because there's no runtime ta- type sa- safety. And yeah, right. you made the point that, like like this is not a TypeScript only problem. And I, and I agree. But the weird thing is like TypeScript is... At sometimes the TypeScript compiler has some of the most advanced typing knowledge that any type-based compiler has ever seen. Like if you do an if and you check the type, like if you if you have union types which are basically like this returns either a string or a number, you can do if type of uh, your var- variable is string, it knows in the else that it can only be number, which huh. a lot a lot of compilers do not have that level of complexity. TypeScript does, but the problem is like it gives you all of this false sense of security like oh this is a genius compiler that nothing can ever go wrong and then you go to implement something that needs uh good reflection support no you can't do it because javascript sucks uh you go and run something at runtime no you can't do it javascript sucks and you're getting just a string instead of a date like the how good the compiler is and how how it presents itself as a language extension makes it look like it's more capable than it actually is. And then you, you feel disappointed when it doesn't actually live up to those expectations. So it's more of an expectations thing than an actual, like, I don't like the behavior of this because like, as you mentioned, like I'm cool with this in objective C. (laughs) Right. And, but my point was less about that, but more about, it seems to me, and again, I'm sure I'll anger people, but it seems to me that it's more like kind of, an ID functionality, meaning that when you write code in the ID that supports uh, TypeScript, it does it for you just to make sure that in the end you write some semblance of type JavaScript that never will exist because that's how JavaScript is today. If your code mainly interacts with itself and your whole project is TypeScript, you basically are, unless you forcibly cast things into types they shouldn't be, you will not get any type errors because it's going to work. If your code gets called by external modules, which is what's happening with the controller example that I mentioned here, and you don't know ahead of time what types it's calling you with, you can define your parameters literally any type you want. It won't change what they're going to be calling you with, and you're going to get type errors accidentally a bunch of the time, like it was the case for me with this example. Oh, I was just about to add, and my guess is this external module cannot be delivered in a TypeScript fashion. It is fully in TypeScript, but the problem is, like, they're sort of in this detached way where there can't be any type safety because they don't have my code when they wrote the thing, so they just have right. to dispatch things in a way, and I don't know what that way is because it's not... Yeah, it, yeah it's yeah, the kind it's... of thing that makes sense in a purely JavaScript world. But in TypeScript, it just kind of falls apart because there's nothing there to sort of declare what the protocol is between these two things that are talking to each other indirectly. Yeah, it's a, I'm doing the translation in my head. It's like, it does Objective-C message then 
enjoy and then you have to deal with the fact that they did that on the other side because they don't know about your type system huh pretty much uh so yeah the, the last thing i wanted to say is also like okay so i said the thing about external modules if you're writing a library in typescript that is going to be called in the browser by code that isn't using typescript because it's running in the browser uh you also aren't free of type errors there as well uh the browser can send whatever the hell it wants so yeah that's sort of my big issue with typescript like the, it, it basically comes down to fraudulent typescript system and uh writing a lot of boilerplate code to shut up the compiler which is something i do not like in any language uh so yeah that uh, that's sort of where it comes down uh i do have a one more thing though for the javascript section and that is sort of like the whole thing with uh node and npm sort of taking over web development. JavaScript is a pretty messed up language, but the one thing that it had going for it was how easy it was to pick up and develop for. You could just make a new text file, write a script tag, start typing some JavaScript code in there, save it as index.html, open it in your browser, no tooling necessary, you were writing JavaScript. And almost everybody has something that can run JavaScript on their machine. Uh, Actually, probably everyone by now. it doesn't cost anything. You can just start writing code and your canvas is the entire web. You can do basically anything. At a certain point, uh, tools like TypeScript got more popular. Uh, people started wanting to write uh, JavaScript of higher versions than what was inside of browsers that were still being in use. Uh, so we had a bunch of transpilers like <laughs> Babel by Facebook that would take uh, ECMAScript 6, uh, ES 2015, ES whatever the fuck it is now. I think it's 2022. Uh, and transpile it to basically like JavaScript 5 uh, so that it would run an IE 10 or whatever. And like, it's cool that you can support those users with uh, your fancy thing. Uh, Nowadays, people don't bother as much because browsers mostly auto update and keep up with the standards. Unless, and let's say I don't talk about personal experience, unless your web developers are used to use uh, Chrome JavaScript APIs that only Chrome has implemented and they use a transpiler and they're like, why is it not working on Safari iOS? And I'm like, I don't care. It's your problem. <laughs> That's a different thing, I think, because I think th- there's... I- I'm trying to separate, like, web APIs, which are literally, like, these are features that Safari decides not to support, right. and the JavaScript language, which is... Okay. Then JavaScript language, that, I think Safari can keep up with that pretty easily. It's web APIs like uh, web USB and uh, web MIDI and other stuff that is, like... Yeah, cool. I can address an RS two thirty two port on my on my website if I want. Great. I Thanks. I know it was not those example. I forgot which API, like web API, they were using, but I know it was the typical. Like, oh, we didn't assume, or we assume our transpiler would fix that on older Safari version because the new one does support the API. That's not how that works. <laughs> <laughs> they were using it. I'm like, okay, but you broke our app, so please go fix it. And yeah, that was fun. Yeah. But yeah, basically, like the, the point I'm trying to get at is that it used to be one of the easiest languages to get into. And now because of everything with Node and NPM and all of this extra tooling being added onto stuff, and now uh, because everything is moving towards stuff like, uh, like I didn't mention JSX, which is basically like this extension of JavaScript that can handle inline HTML, which is what React uses for its component hierarchies. Uh, like you sort of, 
you don't need tooling. You can get a version of React that has a built-in compiler and push it to your uh, to your users, and they can do the compilation on the uh, client side if they want. Uh, and in practice, for small applications, like there isn't that big of a penalty to doing that, and I am kind of comfortable with doing that in production. But like. It's like I mentioned earlier when I was talking about Create React App, a lot of people are being funneled into a specific type of JavaScript development, which I think is really wasteful of computing resources and more complicated than it needs to be when it was much simpler back in the day. And it's not a question of this is the only way to achieve a high standard of interactivity if you do it this particular way with NPM, because you can literally go grab a React.js that you can embed in your browser and then start writing code in a, uh, in a script tag and do things that are just as comparable as what I'm doing with my big NPM setup. And you don't have to download the 700 dependencies and have 400 megs of shit on your uh, computer just to have a Hello World app. You can literally have like a 12 line Hello World app with React and it still does the job. And it's baffling to me that we have gotten so far away from that old school uh, web development thing. And you can still do it, but there's so much like uh, friction because it is not recommended by anyone to anyone. And it kind of pisses me off because it makes JavaScript development a lot more daunting than it used to be. Like you sort of killed the one biggest advantage JavaScript had, which is it was the most accessible programming language. You killed that. Now it's just a kind of shitty programming language that requires a lot of tooling to use. And the only reason people use it is because it runs fast. Like, that's literally the only reason people use it. Uh, and there's this whole other thing with, like, WebAssembly, which is basically, hey, JavaScript sucks. Everybody hates JavaScript, but we can't fix JavaScript because web standards. Uh, so uh, let's just make a thing that is kind of like assembly so we can compile stuff to it, like C programs, and then run that in the browser instead. And it's like, well, now you sort of have, like, a shitty cross-platform development strategy, and you also have... Uh, still JavaScript. Uh, so I don't think you've solved anything there. Um, anyway, I'm ranting a lot because I just really miss that old school JavaScript development stuff. And like, I, I didn't like JavaScript back then either, but that was the big advantage it had. And it's losing that over time. And it kind of bothers me that we are okay with this as a development industry to just be like, no, NPM is the is the thing you do now, even though there's no real reason to do it. Anyway, let's stop talking about stupid code and start talking <laughs> about uh, workflow stuff like testing and code review, Ooh, which is not stuff I've done before. That sounds fun. Yeah. So uh, for this phase of the project, I was mostly unit testing the back end and uh, some utility functions on the front end. Um, I'm still getting used to how you test different kinds of code patterns. For example, like I had to implement custom streams last week which was not the most fun thing to test, uh, especially if you don't think about your testability while you're writing them and you're just kind of, ah, I'm just trying to get this shit to work and then it works and you're like, oh, I have to test this now. And then it's like, well, this kind of is hard to test because I didn't structure things right. Uh, so I know the feeling. You get yeah. used to it because you start like, oh yeah, if I did the, the, the uh, let's call it the intuitive way, then make it hard to test. Then I'll make it the test intuitive way and it works yeah but you just have to figure that out over time because it's oh yeah not... 
Yeah, it's you, not something you, that's written somewhere. No, you build the you build this knowledge by burning yourself ten thousand times and writing the code. And like, oh yeah, I'm done with my feature crap. It's hard to test. Yeah, I'm uh, at least twice over my um my estimate for that feature. So, <laughs> um, I'm still not entirely decided on when I want to write my tests. Uh, like you said, like wait until the end of the feature. I think that's probably the wisest, but I'm not sure. Uh, I also like adding them incre- incrementally as I build the feature up, but then I hate how much time is quote wasted whenever I have to throw away tests after a refactor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure about that. I, I like seeing the green light, uh, so incremental is tempting to me, but yeah. I can uh, tell you what I usually uh, do, um, and it's pretty two, uh, twofold. Is First pass is trying to make the feature work. So I would do a lot of like, okay, I'll try this, I'll try that, or does it work? So trash, trash half of my working stage in Git, and then try other things. Uh, so I would end up also with a lot of uh, Git stashes throughout that moment, or sometimes, rarely though, but with sometimes uh, a bit more branches than just one. Uh, but usually when I'm like getting close to my final, let's call it architecture slash design or like fixing the bug, that's where I start to look at my uh, three of file changes or file additions. And I usually start by the smallest file. I'll, I'll kind of gather a couple of quick wins. Uh, so like, okay, if it's a small like method with the, Define inputs and define outputs. I would start to write those, like typically like Swift extensions or Objective-C categories. Uh, and then I would also look at, oh, if I just uh, rename a couple of variables or kind of rename a method in a file that change, let me run the test for this whole file first before attacking the new classes or the new objects or the big bulk of my change to make sure that I haven't broken uh, things in those uh, modified files. And then I will tackle those big files. And in the end, I hope that with all the related test files to the source code I change is green, then I would go on either locally on my machine or push it to CI, do a full like unit test run or a regression run, depending on what we'll talk about at that level. So that's kind of how I do it incrementally, but I make sure that I have something I'm ready to share, something I'm ready to PR to somebody, even mm. if it's a portion of uh, the the whole solution. Okay, I have enough. I have a couple of commits, or usually that's when I build my commits. That kind of start with okay, I'll write the test for this small file. I'll write this test for this big file. This is enough for a commit. Then I'll continue doing that and kind of start writing my own Git history by. Uh, by committing a couple of those things first and then building those commits and those tests at the same time. So you don't end up with a big commit with full of tests, with full of changes, but you're building a bit of your story of the thinking process you went through to build this solution in PRs, uh, in commits and in tests. And this grows into a bunch of of commits and then you'll be able to PR it. I hadn't thought of the sorting by file size thing. That's actually pretty smart. Maybe I'll do that next time. Yeah, and I don't say I always start as small because sometimes you're tired of writing tests, so you want to get a couple of quick wins. But I know, like, for example, usually, the, like I mentioned, the extensions, those are getting done quickly because yeah. 
I can, and that's usually what I work. Uh, the way I work is I stage the file I consider done. So when I look at my uh, working sp- copy status, I know that, okay, let's say the Swift file and this test Swift file are not staged. It means that I still have tests to write before committing. Mm. So a couple of the small tips like that on how I kind of uh, create my test hierarchy and things like that. And also when there are moments, and I, I won't lie, those have been rarer in the like in the last more or less ten years of my career. They have moments where I would do more TDD, where you would write the tests first. But yeah. For a lot of the UI stuff that I do in iOS, it's kind of hard to do that first, uh, unless you're kind of doing something more like data model layer and things like that. And even then, it's kind of hard. But sometimes I would start writing the method name. So like with XC test, you need to say func test. But I would say test with this input or test when an error happens or test when the network call got canceled by the network. So I would start not building the function, but I would start to write what I want to test. So I kind of get an idea. Okay, I'm t- if it's a network, uh, a network API, I need to test. Okay, I need to test when I get data, when I get an error, when the network request is being canceled, and all those different scenarios. I kind of pre-build them in my test file. So I, when they come to mind when I develop, I don't forget about them, even if I don't write them right away. Mm. So a couple of tips here. I hope so. Yeah, I I wanted to do more TDD style stuff. The problem is like the way Nest's test harness stuff works makes it kind of challenging for that because of the dependency injection stuff and all that stuff. It sort of assumes a certain minimum unit of code is present for it to actually work. And that kind of makes TDD tricky in certain parts of the app. But anyway. Yeah, I don't think you should feel too bad about it. Like if you, But I do agree with you that you need to be careful on when you write your test because you don't want to end up writing tests three times. Yeah, yeah because yeah. you you tried something then that didn't work uh, and i'm not saying like you wrote something to fix a bug you deployed the bug it didn't fix and i mean like part of your solutioning if i can call it so part of like figure out the solution to the user story you're developing or the bug you're figuring out you might go through a couple of solutions and you don't want to write tests for all of them and yeah, then trash yeah. most of them of course uh, next phase of the project is going to push into different kinds of tests. So uh, end-to-end testing, which basically ta- basically simulates what a client actually uh, gets when they ping your API directly and verifies that uh, your authentication layer works, that your uh, if you have interceptors or whatever uh, along the way, all of those work, and basically that you get a reasonable API response at the end instead of just doing unit tests at the service class level and stuff like that. So that that's coming up. Uh, we've, fun. Also, we've also got uh, penetration tests for uh, cybersecurity coming up and mm-hmm. uh, front-end unit tests, which is going to be the first time anyone has ever done front-end unit tests for the React components directly. Uh, so who knows how that's going to work. Um, but we're going to be doing that this phase. So uh, more stories to look forward to, I guess, uh, later on on the show. The other thing I want to talk about is code review. Uh, so previously, I've never done code review. And I I was sort of dismissive of it with smaller teams because at the pace at which I was working at my old job, 
I felt like it would always be a blocker uh, because we basically had like three developers who were always working on stuff and uh, waiting after code review would just become like this blocker to uh, deployment. And I don't think the boss or the clients would necessarily appreciate having that as a constant blocker in the process. Um, that said, I have been pleasantly surprised with how well code review works when uh, you have, well, A, when you have tests uh, on the way uh, there so that uh, like if your tests don't pass, it's not even going to go to code review first. Uh, you have to make sure it passes. So you have to have like some minimum of something working there. Uh, and then <clears throat> I also didn't appreciate, uh, I didn't realize how much I was going to enjoy code review as the reviewer because it actually keeps me more in touch with what my uh, teammates are doing within the project than I expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm so happy that you mentioned this. <laughs> I am so happy. Because remember, and I, I'll go on a small tangent, even about what you said about a small team. Remember when you said that I, you rage quit at your previous job and you're like, I have to teach my colleagues how does the system work. PRs are a great learning tool for learning a code base. It's also a great learning tool for your colleagues to know what's coming in this code base, even if they're not actively working on it. Uh, PRs are not just to make sure that the quality of the code that gets in, it's a good tool at that too, that you like have a certain uh, code style or code, like or a certain style of building certain functionality in following a certain architecture that this is still followed, but they are a great learning tool of the code base itself. And even for the reviewer, because you might open a PR where you're not using a certain functionality of the code base and somebody's like, hey, you forgot that you should do this that will simplify your solution. It's like, oh crap, that's true. And then you go back to the drawing board. So PRs, I strongly believe, and I'll repeat it 10,000 times, they are a great learning tool for a team and even a team of two or three uh, of a big code base. Yeah, I do think though, however, that it kind of has to be uh, planned for in your project planning, uh, which is would not have been the case if I had decided, hey, we're doing uh, PRs and uh, code review at my old job. Like, if the timetables don't actually like adapt to uh, to get to consideration that there's going to be time put towards code review, that there's time going towards testing. Like you're just going to be behind all the time because it does take time, but the time is worth it. Fair, fair. It does take time, but it I does. think it is worth Especially it. Especially the testing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah. Yes. But yeah, it, it was really good to actually like uh, do that and actually like sometimes spot things, even when I was new to the code base, being like, well, why did you do that here? Uh, or this variable name could be more descriptive. Or like today I actually like, it wasn't a code problem per se. It was more like, hey, you wrote all of this code to calculate these values, but these values are also received within uh, the data that's sent by our API. Uh, what if there's a mismatch between the data that we receive from the API that is displayed in this part of the app and the data that is calculated through your calculation method here? Should we uniform them? Uh, should we make these uniform? Either use only the the API versions or the calculated versions and to remove inconsistencies in our app's display layer and stuff like that. So you can find problems like that, that even like experienced developers aren't necessarily going to think of because they don't necessarily 
focus on the same scope of the project as you do. And therefore you have different awareness of like what's going on in different features and can point things out like that. So yeah, it's, it was a lot more helpful than I thought. And if I had known that earlier, uh, well, I probably wouldn't have been able to change, but I would have pushed more for it. <laughs> no, and I, I think what you're echoing right now is it is something you have to live through. You have yeah. to live in a team that had a great PR culture. Same thing with testing a role. You have to live in a project, in a product, in a team that values testing to see the benefits and see like, oh yeah, okay, if it's, I don't want to say done well, but let's say it will say done done well, I see how it can uh, out-benefit the cost it incurs on a team. Yeah. But if you never lived it, it's hard to only uh, like believe it only at seeing it or hearing it from people. Yeah, I think developers have to believe it and then they have to get their managers to believe it and then they have to get the client to believe it to actually pay for it. <laughs> but yeah... It, it has to start kind of at the developer level, I think, because I don't think very man- very many managers are going to be like, we're going to add like 20% time or whatever, or 15% time dedicated to code review in our estimates and then sell that to the client. Anyway, uh, workflow-wise, there isn't much else for me to talk about. Um, I mean, I'm back to using Jira for the first time in like six years. Ooh. Uh Sometimes it's wild to see the things that people make in Jira. Uh, basically, like our company seems to be using it as a crazy database and not so much as <laughs> just what it's used for usually, which is task management and uh, ticket management. They've got like a whole purchase order system in there as well. And uh, yeah, it's wild. Uh, it, it also kind of baffles me because everything i do on jira is so slow and it's like why would you build something on such a slow database engine but whatever uh not my problem um but yeah it's nice to have like proper task organization having like actual project planning actual project managers uh the the one thing that has been giving me added stress is estimates uh because even before when i used uh, jira we didn't really have task estimates at all and now i I feel a lot of pressure seeing that estimate number and I feel terrible whenever I go over it and everyone else on my team is saying like, you don't need to freak out as much about the estimates. It is not a huge deal. I do have the question about the estimates. What is it? I'll say it this way. Points or hours or days? Is it the time-based? Hours, hours. Oh, okay. I don't know what points is. Okay. That's good. Uh, no, that's good. But uh, I then it explains the um, I, I exp- it explains the pressure of saying, hey, if everything is limited in hours, then if you go over the allotted hours, you freak out because you're late, but you're not really late. And I, I'm not the biggest fan of estimating tickets with the real time value it takes because it never, never, ever takes that amount of time there's always i I actually participated in the estimating session for uh phase two and the problem is like it i didn't know how the estimates were estimates were being made i thought they were actually thinking about things when they were doing the estimates but actually like it's even i don't want to say stupider than that it's pretty dumb it's you have like basically these buckets of time you have like xs s m l xxl and it's like Okay, well, we'll we'll just I've use the one that. that seems reasonable, except it's like, oh, okay. So 
if you're literally limited to that and you can't actually tweak the hour time or the hour amount, it's no, going to be off by a lot, a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's it, it is better. It's like more or less what I'm saying is, and again, that's there's uh, only words on that topic too. But yeah. my experience uh, more or less says that what I meant by points is usually a, a metric that talks about uh, that removes a bit. We really call it, it's a matrix that describes complexity. And again, that's really uh, real hard to do. But usually when we talk about points, if you look at a lot of the agile stuff, uh, not the agile stuff, but a lot of the people uh, thinking about that, they, they would use a kind of a, a Fibonacci scale of saying like 1, 3, 5, 8, 13, 20. And then the change number means that, yeah, it, like there is a bigger gap between five hours and 15 hours in development than a gap of a task that takes one hour versus a task that takes three. And that's what you're trying to say. It's like complexity of a task is not linear and not attaching it to hours is kind of removing this linearness. And again, it's not an exact science either, but, uh, I think overall for the stress of people, I've managed people not for like 15 years, I like, I know, but still uh, this is the feedback uh, when my dev experience uh, being uh, having to estimate in hours is there's a lot of unneeded stress because you know your boss is like, oh yeah, but even if today is eight days, but we know that we have stand up, it's 30 minutes, we have this, we know that that's, we have the focus moments where you really focus. So in the end, a day is not, an ideal day is not eight hours, it's like five and three quarters because we decided mm. it's five and three quarters. So, so there's always kind of a, a feeling, like a magic number you end up and that's why I was like, just remove hours, just say like, this is bigger this is more complex so it's twice as big yeah, yeah and after a couple of cycles sprints whatever you want to call your development cycles uh you can have end up with the magic numbers of we can do x number of points and guess what if we do below that we have to reflect on why and if we do more then we also have to reflect why uh we were quote-unquote more productive in a cycle so so yeah, so uh, no, but uh, to go back about our estimates, uh, I agree with your colleagues, you shouldn't feel too bad, especially if there's a system to back you up. Uh, and it seems from the limited comments you made that your colleagues are, are there to back you up. And if you're able to justify why, uh, your colleague will go to defend you. And that's great. Yeah, and my boss, like, I, I met my boss last week for the three-month meeting, and he basically said, like, you seem to be freaking out a lot more about estimates than you should. Uh, if you being overestimate is a problem, you will hear about it from us, and you should not worry about it until then. And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe that's maybe that's fine after all. That's That's good. That's good. Yeah. So that's pretty much it for me. Um yeah, I think I pretty much covered everything I wanted to say about these technologies. Overall, I think it's been a little bit negative. And like I said earlier, like I'm negative about a lot of these things because they are not to my personal taste. I think a lot of these things have a place anyway. Like I understand why uh, we're using TypeScript. Like obviously there's the whole uh, tooling aspect of things where we had uh, better auto autocomplete and all that stuff in our editors. And you do catch bugs 
with TypeScript, even though I think there is a lot of boilerplate and crap that I would rather not write. Um, and like, I can't do anything about the stupid runtime type safety. Uh, <laughs> but like, it, it, it I, I understand why people want to adapt, uh, adopt TypeScript and like, it, it makes sense in a business environment where you've got a big team. Uh, I think like the React approach is good. I maybe wouldn't have personally chosen uh, React and especially not like React via the whole NPM machine thing uh, for my personal projects. I think I tend to lean towards like, if I'm going to go to the library side of things, I'm going to go to smaller, more focused libraries. Otherwise, I'm just going to go to an app framework like Angular. I don't really like the middle space that React occupies. Like there are a bunch of like nitpick decisions like that that are very like, trademark me things to say on the podcast but like they're not deal breakers for me they're just like not to my personal taste and that's okay uh so yeah it's been jarring (laughs) coming to this wholly new environment uh because basically like the first time i ever wrote a real application in node was my interview project they gave me like uh i think it was eight hours to write like a really basic app and they said, you can use any technology. And I was like, well, you guys said that you do React, MongoDB, and uh, Node. They hadn't said said Nest.js on their website. So I was like, if I'm going to work for you, I'm going to have to learn them anyway. So I might as well learn them while I do my interview project. And I did that. And uh, I maybe bit a bit more than I could chew. <laughs> uh, but luckily, during my interview, I was able to like explain why I was rushing so much and uh, what I had learned and what I would do differently if I had to do it again. And uh, like there were things like the, I mentioned the class versus function component thing. I was like, I know that there is a more modern way to do it, but within my time constraints, I was more comfortable doing it within the class thing to actually get it to work than to use the function thing. But I know that I need to learn how React hooks work if I'm going to do this professionally uh and i know that the person who interviewed me was very impressed by that comment so it's like you can dig your way out of it uh if you know what you're doing uh hey it's better than saying i'm lazy let me tell you that happened oh my god (laughs) why do you do this i'm lazy oh okay yeah Yeah. i do have uh, again i know there's a lot of uh, on the, yet another only wars about like what type of coding exercise you do during interviews and i don't want to diverge too much on this but i personally do enjoy the you have a take-home test uh you might have a, a time limit or not and then you have to explain what you've done during the interview like there's an open conversation about why did you do this like what do you find challenging like what would you improve to like also start to understand how the person thinks about developing solution to a specific problem. I think my intro to my to my like follow up interview with regards to the project I had done was like I'm not proud of the thing I've done, but let me explain to you everything I hate about it. <laughs> <laughs> that is a so you answer. It's very to... on brand. Yes, it is so Yannick. Oh yeah. wow! So I wish I, I wish I was in this interview. I'm sure I would have laughed. I think that's when they knew that they had they had me. Um, so yeah, that that's it for this episode. Good. Uh, I don't think this week we'll have 
that much show notes, but as usual, you can find the show notes for this episode at limitlesspossibly.net slash 184, so 184. You can also find our back catalog of episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can also find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Lukonosh. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And Yannick is at... Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.